You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. So, Father, we're thankful that you've brought us together on this Lord's Day and reminded us again of who we are in our own natural state and who we are now as those redeemed by the Lamb. And I pray that you'll help us in this hour together to have our minds and our hearts open to what you teach us from these parables of that Jesus you left us with so long ago, and yet here they continue to reverberate through the centuries as they make their presence known even today. So help the teacher and those who are here to listen that all of us would be in a posture of humility to learn. And if any of that happens, Lord, we will know that that's because of the kindness of the teaching office of the Holy Spirit. And we ask him to be our teacher today. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm having printer issues again, so I've got my computer up here, um, which will go off on me. So if I start fumbling, you'll know what's going on. And anyway, um, we're in Luke 13 today, and um, the parable of the barren fig tree. Um, so let me read Let me read to you the context of what's going on here, and then we'll, we'll talk about it. And I think we're starting a little bit early today, so I hope to maybe leave some time for some Q&A. Um, but we'll see. I don't really like Q&A. Uh, <laughs> Anyhow, let, let me read Luke 13. There were some present at that very time who had told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all uh, likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, and he found none. And he said to the vine dresser. Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone Let this year until I dig around it and put on some manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Oh, yes. Right. So Luke 13 and this parable need to be kind of given in a, in a larger context of what's going on in Luke 12 and then what goes on after this. This is this like all of Jesus' parables have has a certain kind of challenge uh, to it, and a certain kind of edge to it. But I will just tell you before we get out of the gate, so that I don't bury the lead. I do think that this parable right here is a parable of deep gospel hope. And and it doesn't sound that way initially, but I think as we sort of press into it, maybe you'll see that this parable is actually really good news about the character of our God to allow his goodness to lead us to repentance. But we'll get back to that in a second. So let me let me set up some contextual issues and then we'll press back in. So back back to Luke chapter 12. Uh, For those of you who are here 
last week, you remember that Luke chapter 12 and its sort of overall frame is, is emphasizing what real versus false security looks like. You have to remember now, Jesus is announcing the coming of the kingdom of God. Uh, these parables are kingdom of God parables. Uh, so the nature of these parables are meant to disorient people who have really probably gr- grown quite accustomed to their own religious mode of being. In other words, this is not their first rodeo when it comes to first century uh, Jewish uh, religious life and what that life looks like in some mode of perceived faithfulness. They know what that would look like. And here Jesus comes announcing the kingdom of God, and he does so in such a way to throw people off. He's, he's, He's trying to do that. When Jesus announces the kingdom of God is present, that's... That's, again, a kind of mixed message of good news and bad news. If I can quote uh, Tom uh, N.T. Wright or Tom Wright, I don't know if any of you have read uh, N.T. Wright's works. By the way, kind of a funny side story. Apparently, someone uh, pulled him aside. He told this one time I heard him. that Someone pulled him aside, and in, in his books, he'll be either N. period, T. period Wright or Tom Wright. He can do both. And, and a lady pulled him aside after one of his presentations and said, by the way, um, uh, your Tom, your stuff I like very much, but this N.T. Wright guy, I don't like his stuff at all. He's like, oh, that's bad news. But, um, Tom Wright uh, said, to kind of give a frame of, of what first century Jewish eschatology would look like. In other words, what, what was a Jewish understanding of a doctrine of the end of times, of last things? And it was really a rather simple uh, eschatology. Okay, uh, I've got a pence, uh, uh, chalk. So this would be fun. Um, if you can, well, you almost got the Tower of Siloam fell on you right here. Uh, um, so here, here's here's Jewish eschatology. You ready for this? Now, I grew up in a world that had a very complicated eschatology. Want to see that? Like the Stokes, you grew up in this kind of world too, didn't you? You were a pre-trib, pre-mill guy, weren't you, growing up? Um, So this was my complicated eschatology growing up. You ready for this? So here, uh, Jesus comes. Then you have the new, uh, the Christian age. Then you have uh, the uh, rapture. Are you familiar with this? I can still reproduce this. Um, Left Behind series. You know, I I was flying on an airplane one time. I'm I'm telling people I'm a Calvinist on the ground, but I'm an Arminian in the air. Like, I I don't fly well. Um, and I'm sitting there on the airplane. I'm never quite comfortable with it. And then I see a, a stewardess sitting down reading the first volume of Left Behind. I'm like, that's. I'm there. I was like, I don't want, I don't want the rapture to happen here. I, I, I think I'm okay, but I never know. I always at Beeson look around for Frank Thielman because if he's still around, he, he's a man that really is very Christ-like, and I'm very aware of my non-Christ-likeness when I'm around him. So if, if Frank is still in his office, I know the rapture hadn't happened yet. Um, so you have the rapture, which then leads into like a, a seven-year period of mess called the tribulation, which will then co- uh, will, will bring in the second coming, and then you'll have a thousand-year reign. You know all this stuff? And then you'll have... A Satan loose for a little bit. That always struck me as like, why go through that again? But then Satan <laughs> goes out again. I shouldn't make fun of this, but um, uh, and, and it's a very complicated system built off of a very, I would say, a very highly calibrated uh, 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 interpretation of the Bible. So I, I don't. This is not stupid. It's actually an enormous achievement to get that there. 
Um, here, here's, here's Jewish eschatology. Ready for this? Old age, new age. <laughs> right? Um, that's Jewish eschatology. And this is Tom Wright's uh, phrase. What Jews expected, first century Jews expected to happen at the end of time. In other words, this, this would bring in, I guess, some understanding of the cessation of time. Or at least a new mode of entering into a temporal frame with, with our experience with God. What they expected to be the new age and the end of time was actually something in Jesus Christ, so I'll put the cross here, that occurs in the middle of time. And now what you end up ha happening, and this is the kind of eschatological future time view that I work with now, and again, it's because this is too complicated for me. I like simple things. And here, here's, here's how I think we understand it now, is we live right here. So you have the new age, you have the old age, and with the coming of Christ and the inauguration of his kingdom, we live in this temporal frame right here where you recognize that there's an overlap of the ages. We live in the old age and the new age at the same time. For those of you who've done some Pauline studies, you'll be familiar with the language of already and not yet. Um, we, we live in the already of Christ's kingdom. He is here and he is king now. But we also recognize that we live in the not yet character of that coming again, uh, that we look forward to the consummation of the kingdom of God that's already been laid down in its fullness because Jesus is raised from the dead. So we live in the overlap of those ages. And by the way, I think this overlap of the ages is a really important tool for understanding um, our own existence as Christians. We live a kind of we live in tension, even with our own selves, because we know, yes, I'm already in the new age fully in Christ, and yet I'm still marked by the desires and the sinful instincts of the old age, and those seem to be overlapping one with another. That Again, this eschatological view of time and our place in it can really become a very helpful lens for understanding all kinds of facets of the Christian life. All right, so that... If you want to ask questions about that later, you feel free to. Um, oh, that could have been bad. Um, so that, that's a sense of what's going on in Luke chapter 12 is real security versus false security in light of the fact that the kingdom of God is on us. And last week's parable that we talked about was, was the rich fool who set aside all of his possessions and he did really hard work, if I can put it in our categories, he did really hard work to build his 401k. So that when he got to age 65, he looked at that number and that number worked and he stopped and he said, now I'm going to eat, drink and be merry. Um, and then God says to him, I've got bad news for you. You're going to die. Um, and my, I, I can hear my father's sort of sage wisdom on this. You see, he always reminds me, he says, remember, Mark, when you when you put picture yourself in retirement, you picture your 35 year old body in retirement. <laughs> and unfortunately, you're going to get a 70-year-old body and retire. All those things you wanted to do, you're really going to just want to take a nap. Is what you're going to do, right? So, like, so I mean, this I think this is kind of what Jesus is is leaning into in this parable. Like, where are you putting your, where's your security? There is a false security that can be experienced as real, I and mean, that that's that's the point of the parable that we probably didn't lean into enough last week. The experience of the rich fool was a was a real perception. In other words, he genuinely felt secure. Um, and from, I guess, a cultural perspective, he had every reason to be secure. 
His barns were filled. He had to build bigger barns. And now he can just sort of kick back and enjoy the rest and not have to. But what happens? Well, God has a little interlocution with him and says, but now you're going to die. And when you die, you don't take any of those possessions with you. So really, where was your security? Your perception of security was really this big, massive revelation that you never had security in the first place. And that's why he's identified as the fool. And we talked about this a lot last week. This, This is not... Jesus' parable is, is not a kind of Marxist critique of wealth. I don't think so. I believe that Jesus' parable there is a critique of all of our instinct um, uh, to rest and, and find our security in something other than who we are in our relationship to the God of the universe. And Jesus talks about that for the rest of chapter 12. Um, he's, he's talking to them about, don't fear those who can, who can uh, kill the body only. Fear those who have the charge over your souls. And what Jesus is doing with this kingdom message is he's leaning hard, very hard actually, um, to let people know that their experience of reality as it exists now in this temporal moment is not the sum total of reality. In fact, there's something more real that exists now and we will come into later. And that, again, is this overlap of the ages. The new age is something that we're in now, but we will experience it more fully later in its totality. And that's where security needs to be placed. When we look at the new age, where are you on this map here of of, uh, old age and new age? And and Jesus is pointing people to say your security is is solely reliant on the fact that you're firmly located in the new age. And 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 what's Jesus announcing? And I am the new age. I am the resurrection and the life. When Jesus says that in John chapter 11 uh, to Mary and Martha at the, the tomb of Lazarus, when Jesus says that, now I think you can read John 11 and hear this big, this simple paradigm coming to the fore. When he looks at them and he says, I am the resurrection and I am the life. Well, remember what was precedent to that, that, that statement from Jesus? Jesus says, do you believe in the resurrection? And then what does, what does um, uh, what does Martha think about Martha? says, of course we do. We believe in the resurrection at the final day. And Jesus says, I am resurrection and I am life. That's Jesus leaning into this paradigm. It's not for a time to come. It's for times now and for times to come. I am resurrection. I am life. And your location in the future, your genuine security when it comes to, if I can use, you know, Christian language in American evangelical culture, your eternal security and salvation is, is solely located in your position in Jesus Christ because He is resurrection. He is the life. That's not something we look forward to then. It's something that we're in now. And I, I don't, I, I don't know how to lean into that as hard as one should, but that's, that's really a profound theological instinct that you find in the New Testament from the beginning to the end. It's an understanding and a conceptualization of our identity. How do you perceive the self? How do you perceive and understand who you are and who, what your fundamental identity is? And is that identity based on false security or a false understanding of your selfhood? Because Jesus wants you to know that your selfhood and your security all come from your position and location in the one who is resurrection and the one who is life. 
If you remember the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he says that the age of the resurrection is on us now. Why? Because Jesus is raised from the dead. And, when, and, and this, I'm off script here. Um, oh, well, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Um, well, I mean, when one thinks about um, the age and the age to come and how we view our own particular selves in light of cultural norms around us. I think this is one thing that the Apostle Paul really wants you to know and to understand about your identity, and that is your identity is an identity that's in Jesus. And Jesus is blowing up the conversation in the first century world by emphasizing that in his ministry from the time that he opened his mouth to the time that he resurrected from the grave. Um, and that's and that is the life-altering and life-changing announcement of the good news of Jesus in the kingdom. Okay, now all that aside, um, now let's look to Luke 13. If you have Bibles or phones, I want to sort of put this in context. Um, so uh, he 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 begins this parable by these first five verses that sets up for us a kind of anticipation for how we're to understand the parable itself. Do you think? that these Galileans were worse sinners. That language, by the way, do you think? We've seen Jesus introduce difficult topics back in chapter 12 two times that way already. So this is becoming a formula for Jesus, a kind of catchphrase, uh, do you think? Um, which is, uh, a, 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 I think, a rather poignant way of Jesus rousing the conscience. You have a certain way of thinking but I want to challenge you in your thinking. Do you really think that X, Y, or Z? And by the way, we've read enough of the Gospels to know that that must have been a rather standard understanding within the first century world among even faithful Jews that there was a kind of direct correlate between, between people's sin and the suffering that they experienced, which is a kind of interesting thing because they had the book of Job at their disposal as well. That's not the logic of the book of Job. And Jesus is trying to lean against that logic as well. Do you remember they saw the blind man? Who's, who sinned, the mom or the dad? And Jesus is like, it's nothing about that. Um, so so uh, when these Galileans got slaughtered, were they a special sinners because of that? When the tower fell on 18 people and they died, and I love this, by the way, because Jesus is, Jesus is leaning into the front page of the New York Times here, or I should say the Jerusalem Gazette. Um, and uh, I think we had Fleming Rutledge here uh, during Lent, and I think the book that kind of put uh, Fleming on the map was her book, The Bible and the New York Times. I, I, she, she didn't even come up with that title, but she loved it. Um, and Jesus is kind of doing, a, you know, a, the Bible and, and the Jerusalem Daily News here. So you've read these reports about what happened in Siloam. You've read these reports about what happened with Pilate. And by the way, Pilate was a despised figure who tried to set up certain kind of worshiping practices in the temple and cause all kinds of riots and chaos. I mean, Pilate was, was a difficult person. He, he gets a somewhat sympathetic treatment at times in the Gospels, actually. Um, and historically speaking, though, I think Pilate was a, was a very uh, difficult person who, frankly, if it weren't for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, would, no one in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, he would just have been a blip on the screen historically in Roman history. But um, nevertheless, Jesus brings him up again. So you heard about Pilate's salt slaughter. You heard about this, this catastrophe with the tower. Who sinned more? 
And Jesus' point is, if you think that this had, there's any correlate between this, you do not understand that the day of visitation is on you right now. Today is the day of visitation for all of you, and he calls them to repent. Now, that's very crucial. He does it twice in these five verses here in Luke 13. He's calling on them to repent. Now, tuck that somewhere, because we're going to come back to this and talk about repentance before the morning is over. But keep that before you, because that notion of repentance and Jesus calling them all to repent because they're all sinners, is setting up the context for the parable of the barren fig tree that we're about to get into. Now, can I jump after the parable of the fig tree for a second? When you go into chapter, I mean, verse 10 through 17, now we actually find a woman in a weakened state. She has a disabling spirit. Um, Jesus, again, is going to have a little row with the religious leaders because here's a woman that's disabled in some way. She's crouched over by, by an evil spirit. Jesus heals her. By the way, she doesn't ask for any of this. Jesus just does this as a kind of a fiat move toward her. And then he gets into a kind of a religious exchange between the Pharisees who said he shouldn't have done that on the Sabbath, which we look at this and we go, what an absurdity. And Jesus gives them the same response, double barrels. Um, I mean, if you had an ox that was stuck in a ditch, you'd help him out. And here's a woman that's been, you know, uh, beholden to this this physical ailment for all these years, and and you're upset with me that I did this. He said you've completely misunderstood the point. So, lots going on in this narrative here about religious understanding and and Torah observance. There's a lot going on, but one thing that I think is important to see with this story about the woman, um, the the paralytic woman is the fact that she is, I think, representative of the of what's going on with the barren fig tree. She's a woman who's in a weakened state. She's a woman for 18 years who has not been bearing fruit either. And Jesus, in His moment of restoration, in His moment of re- reconciliation, in His kingdom announcement moment that the kingdom is among them, Jesus moves toward this weakened woman who is like the fig tree that we're about to read about, and He heals her. So the fact that Jesus moved to a woman that herself could not bear fruit in her body, she was in a weakened state. She too is a kind of um, representative, a type, a figure of Israel, of Lady Zion. Um, so I think that's something going on here with the lady um, who's, who's, who's paralytic or beholden to this, to this evil spirit and also uh, the, the fig tree that we're about to read about uh, right now. Okay, so now to the parable. That was all set up. Shoot. Um, so here's the parable. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and he found none. So he said to the vine dresser, look, three years now I've come seeking fruit in this fig tree. I don't find any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year and let me fertilize it. And then it should bear fruit next year. Well, and good, but if not, you can then cut it down. All right. So there's something interesting about this parable, particularly the fact that the parable ends without any resolution. It's left open-ended. What's going to happen to the fig tree? That's the question I think we're left with as we engage this parable. What's going to happen to the fig tree? This, by the way, is Jesus entering into, again, that prophetic existence that he embodies in the the totality of his earthly ministry. 
Um, the book of Jonah, by the way, ends just like this parable. And that's why I think it's fair enough to understand Jonah as having a parabolic force to it from beginning to end as well. Jonah is, is a parable too. And how does the book of Jonah end, right? You got chapter four and here's Jonah sitting outside the city gates and he's uh, waiting for a firework show, right? Um, because he brought a prophetic word against the Ninevites. And then it didn't come true, and he's, he's, he's fussy about it. And he tells God in chapter 4, this was the reason I went to Tarshish in the first place, because I knew that you're a kind and merciful God. It's just like you to be kind. Um, and so then God teaches Jonah these lessons. He gives him a little shade tree, tree and then he takes that away. And it, what the Bible calls it, his, 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 his kikayon plant. We don't know what that is, but I think it's always been funny in Hebrew. I don't, we don't know what the tree is, but it's, I think it's meant to sound silly because Jesus, I mean, God asks, which well, is fine. Uh, God asks Jonah, um, are you right to be so mad about your kikayon plant? Your little kikayon plant here that um, that comes up one day and then goes away the next, and yet you're not, and yet you're angry that I've shown mercy to these hundred and twenty thousand who don't know their right hand from their left, and they also have lots of beasts. Period. Um, <laughs> Micah chapter one verse one. You know, like, well, what what is going on there? And that's that's the parabolic force. It's. There's no resolution to the end. We don't know what's going to happen on final analysis uh, to the Ninevites. We flip another book and we get to the book of Nahum and we find out what happens to the Ninevites. Jonah's prophetic word in time does come true, book of Nahum, but we don't know what's going on there. We're left open. And the point of leaving leaving open or uh, being unresolved is that draws us in as a reader to find ourselves now in the actual dynamic of the parable itself, having to ask ourselves the difficult question. Because here's part of the parabolic force, metaphorically speaking, of the barren fig tree. What is the fig tree? What's the fig tree meant to represent? Yes, and, and more, right? It is meant to represent us. I think in Jesus' context in the first century, it's meant to represent Israel. But again, Israel, us, the individual, corporate, personal, all of the above. We're all drawn into this to see ourselves within this story. So what's going on here? Well, this is a parable regarding the judgment of Israel for sin. We see, for example, all throughout the Old Testament, that Israel is identified and portrayed as a fig tree. Um, I wanted to read to you Micah chapter 7, uh, verse 1. I'm going to stay in Micah 7 for a second. Where are you, Micah? Micah 7, verse 1. Woe is me. For I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. I want to read this to you, the rest of Micah 7, because I think Micah chapter 7, Isaiah chapter 5, which is the parable of the vineyard, I think all of these are a piece about what Jesus is leaning into in Old Testament imagery to speak into this first century world. Listen to verse 2 of Micah 7. The godly has perished from the earth. See, this is what Jesus is, is, is speaking of. There's no one upright among humankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. 
And by the way, just to contextualize this in Micah, Micah and Isaiah's major concern is that people are religiously neat and tidy. They know their liturgy. They're involved in it with regularity. They keep attendance to the structures of their visible and external worship. And yet, Micah chapter 2, Micah chapter 3, they're filleting their neighbors and eating them. That's, that's Micah's imagery. So, and Micah chapter 7 kind of regroups the whole of the book of Micah and says, let me just express it to you one more time before I'm done. Right? And here it is. There's no one godly. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge, they ask for a bribe. The great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it all together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them, a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment has come, and now their confusion is at hand. Verse 5, put no trust in neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Uh, again, this leans back into in the Gospel of Luke to the question that the lawyer asked, well, who is my neighbor? Um, here we have in Micah chapter 7, Micah warning the people not to trust their neighbor because the, the second table of the law is not being attended to. And there is no second table of the law, love your neighbor as yourself, without a recognition of the primacy of the first table of the law, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. Jesus is, is gathering, I think, all of this prophetic imagery up, and He's saying, just like Micah announced, all the way back in Micah, the day of your visitation is upon you. Um, that, by the way, is good news and bad news when God visits His people. And you feel that all throughout um, the, the, the prophets, this, this is as, as an aside, but my Hebrew students at Beeson, they, they learn the, the, their Hebrew paradigms, which I think they probably can quote in their sleep, they should, um, is built off the Hebrew uh, word um, pakad. That's, that's it there. Um, and they have to learn this. Uh, pakad, pakada, pakata, yifko, tifko, tif. I mean, I learn all that stuff, right? I mean, I, I, so I want you sleeping. I want you. I want your wife to wake you up and say, "What strange things are you saying in your dreams?" Um, and we don't talk a lot. The, the word means to visit, to appoint, but it's a crucial technical term in the minor prophets, especially. That's the term for visitation. The day of God's visitation is among you. When God visits His people, He can bring both His salvation can be a good day but it can also bring His judgment. And it is within God's character to be both at the same time. Judgment and salvation. So the fig tree can be a portrayal in the Old Testament of judgment, but it also can be used as a portrayal of the idyllic picture of the future. Remember Micah chapter 4 when they've taken their swords and their spears and they've turned them into agricultural tools. The picture is, and everyone is sitting under their own vine and eating their own figs. So the, the so the fig tree metaphor is is is, is right. Sorry, uh, in um, in the uh, in the prophets, right? So what's going on here? Two things I think in this parable. Two things. Number one, um, this parable is speaking clearly about God's forbearance in judgment. Let's say that one more time. This parable is speaking about God's forbearance in judgment. Why? Because the day of visitation was upon them. When Jesus announces the kingdom of God, another way that He could have said the same thing is, the day of visitation is now here, and I and He. 
But if you follow again the logic of the Gospels and the narrative move of Jesus' earthly ministry to his death and resurrection, there is no question that Jesus has arrived on the scene as the judge. He is bringing the day of Yahweh's wrath. He's bringing the day of visitation. He's cleansing the temple. He's, he's, he's uprooting. He's uplifting. He's, he even told us back in, in the chapter right before this that He didn't come to make things happy and, and, harmo- and harmonious on the domestic side. It's actually going to cause a lot of turmoil in my presence. And Jesus has made good on that promise, I think, for a couple thousand years now. So this is the day of visitation is on them. It's the day of God's judgment. And yet what we're finding as we find throughout the Old Testament as well is that in God's judgment, there is mercy and forbearance. He shows forbearance. Don't tear the tree up just yet. Not yet. I mean, we've been, I mean, you hear this? We've been going this, through this for three years. Now, I, I just planted um, my tomato garden. Um, they're, doing, they're, they're, they're doing well. Um, I planted two jalapeno plants and came out one morning and the leaves are all gone. I think some animal ate it or something. Mm. Um, one of them is going to make it, I think. The other one, I don't think it is going to make it. But it's still there. And I'm watering it every day, just in the hopes. That, and, I'm, and I even thought yesterday as I was doing this, go get another one. You know, they're, they're, they're 250 at Lowe's, you know, just to take care of this. Now, this is silly. And what's the logic? Well, I've got a limited garden space. I don't have, you know, I don't have an acre of garden space. I have a limited garden. That, that taking up space that I could put something else there that would be, produ- you know, produce. And this is what's going on here. And, and, the, and the point is that the owner says, not yet. It's his forbearance. You know the story of the golden calf in Exodus chapter 32. You know that they build this calf and they worship a foreign god. I mean, we can't even get out of the book of Exodus before the first law of the Decalogue is being broken. You shall have no other gods. I mean, commandment one and commandment two are broken before we even blink. And according to the logic of the Decalogue, it should have been all over. So, I mean, we, we feel like, oh, it's so harsh for God to tell Moses, listen, let me wipe them out and I'll start all over with the new people with you, Moses. And, and, and we, we hear that, that's so harsh, that's the mean God of the Old Testament at work. But what you recognize is that's God only following through on His justice. He's let them know. I, I told you that I'm the one who redeemed you and that redemption entails with it a, re- a requirement that you're loyal to me and me alone. That's really all I want from you is loyalty. And we can't even blink and we're before out of the book and they're blowing it. And then on the far side of that, when Moses intercedes and then God reveals his name to Moses and he says, listen, this is my name. And he gives these 13 attributes. Four of them are his severity, but nine of them are his mercy. And he shows them mercy even in his judgment. And he does judge them, but he shows mercy even in his judgment. And that's, I think, what we're seeing here about the character of the kingdom of God and the character of God toward his people, recognizing that we're just dust. Don't tear it up yet. Not yet. There's forbearance uh, that we find in this, uh, in this scene. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. This is such a beautiful verse where the Apostle Paul says, It's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the fact that God 
didn't obliterate Israel in the Old Testament, but had this long and tortured history with this unfaithful people. You're like, and we think, boy, he can be so harsh in the prophets, but you're like, he should have done it 200 years ago. Why was he so patient with them? Um, it's his forbearance in this. It's his goodness that leads us to repentance. We see that all through the prophets. We see that in the ministry of Jesus. And we see that in the logic of the Apostle Paul as well. We'll talk a lot around here about the, the second use of the law. Have you heard that language right now? The law, um, whenever it's announced, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the announcement of the law. It's what we're called to do, to measure up in some level to, to, to the righteous character of our own God. And we all say in our liturgy every week after we hear that, Lord have mercy. Because we know that the law accuses us and it tells us that we are, we're sinners and it shows us our need of repentance. We don't talk about this very much, even in the Reformation tradition that I'm trained in, but I think Paul would want us to know that there's also a second use of the gospel. In other words, it's the announcement that God loves sinners, that he's good to sinners, that he's got forbearance in his, in his just wrath. He is holy. He's not like us. I and mean, he can't, he can't bear to be in the midst of iniquity. He's not like us. He's just and holy. He's completely other. And yet in his otherness and his holiness, which really he would have every right to obliterate it all. He's so merciful and kind and intimate. He's our father who runs off the porch. We'll get to that next week uh, to find the prodigal. That's who he is. Um, and that, that recognition, by the way, I think is a recognition that itself can lead us to repentance. If I can be experiential for a moment with you, have you had that happen to you in church before? Or maybe in your own private moment? Where it's just the overwhelming beauty and kindness of Jesus that can just break your heart. Just break your heart. I just I know who I am. I've got full consciousness that I'm I can blow it at any moment in time. Um, and do with, with, with frequent regularity and panache. I'm good at it. Um, and yet, again and again, a kind and gentle Savior He is. A bruised reed He will not break, and a flickering flame He does not blow out. And it's the goodness of God that can at times just break and melt our hearts. That's what's going on. Don't tear out the, vic- the fig tree yet. I know it's been three years with no figs. I know that little jalapeno plant is just there. We don't know. But just give it some time and let's see what happens um, with what might happen in my own, my own mercy. The goodness of... Well, this is part of the... This, I, I leave those things loose. Um, now, of course, the... I mean, I think the fig tree is the fig tree is certainly meant to be representative of Israel, which can be then expanded, I think, metaphorically to or figuratively to include a lot of figures: the church, individuals, corporate individual. Who's the vine dresser? Who's the other? I mean, Augustine, for example, says that it's that um, Jesus is the vine dresser, and it's the Holy Spirit, the one that's coming into the work. I mean, the, the traditions had a, a lot of allegorical ways to deal with. Metaphors that aren't clearly identified. And, I, and, I, and I'm frankly okay with all of them. I think parables like this open up to all kinds of readings like that, as long as I think they're in congruence with what we have before us, which is an emphasis on uh, the patience and forbearance of God and the, and the necessity of faith that leads to good works. And that was the next point I was going to make, so you set me up for that. And that's the second thing, is faith without works is dead. Now, I know that, that's, that's something that we're, we're the, 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 the Jesus is, is speaking about here. Um, faith leads to good works. Now, we're always in danger 
when we begin to kind of analyze our good works in such a way as to find ourselves self-congratulatory or self-affirming, as if now all of a sudden that reveals who I really am. Um, again, if I can, if I can go back to Matthew's gospel, one of these, one of these stories that Jesus tells that haunts me at least on some level, is the fact that both the sheep and the goats uh, did not know when they fed, clothed uh, the hungry and the naked, and gave them something to drink. That, that's the part of that story that always stuns me. Neither one of both groups said, "When exactly did we do that?" Um, and then Jesus says, "Well, when you did this, this, and this." Um, so I don't think it's calling us to a kind of self-consciousness uh, or reflection on the quality of our good works, but it is a recognition that faith necessarily leads to good works. Good works apart from faith, they only serve our pride. And I know this is a hard thing to say, but I'm going to just say it because it's, it's and this is this is not um, c- culturally um, applauded. Of course not, um, because I, 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 we see it all the time, don't we? I mean, people want want you to know about their philanthropic work. I mean, it, it can often lead to self congratulation, and I think that the scriptures know this. Good works done apart from faith, faith actually serve our pride. Um, that's where Martin Luther is, I think, all, uh, always a very healthy antidote. He's like, when you're feeling really good about yourself, look in the mirror. This is Luther, not me, but I'll say it. And feel those donkey ears. You know, that's, that's Luther, right? Um, so there's some truth to that. I think that's very important. But at the same time, the other side is, 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 a, is a recognition and an affirmation that faith does necessarily lead to good works. And if I can use the articles of religion, and those good works done in faith are pleasing to God. They, can we talk that way? They make God happy. Um, when, in faith, in a recognition, these good works do not constitute my identity in Jesus. My identity in Jesus is what constitutes who I am. And when I recognize that I'm fully and completely holy and justified in Him and then live by His grace into that, God loves it. Loves it. Because faith apart from works is dead. I think we often forget this in the Reformation because we saw good works often being abused in the medieval period. But the question about the role of good works in the Christian life was central uh, to Reformation logic. Okay, So that's the parable of the barren fig tree. Do we have time for two questions? I don't know. Nope. <laughs> one, uh, one question. I'll take one. I'm going to do one because I know some of you have to get your children. I've got to get my own. Mrs. Langford. St. Augustine saw the manure of Scripture. Yeah. Um, another way of maybe seeing that is, and, and again, I, sh- I should think more about this. I would probably want to think about the manure as, which is a kind of interesting, there's a lot going on here, but as the gospel. In other words, let's put the gospel on this thing. And, um, the, which again, Augustine would say the Scriptures and the gospel are flip sides of, this, uh, of the same reality, or at least necessarily related the one to the other. Um, but that's how Augustine goes. It's the scriptures that are the manure that are, is, can be the fuel for the growth of genuine faith, which leads to genuine good works. Um, so yeah, that, that's that's probably where I would go. Blessings. I think we have like one more week of this. Two more weeks. I don't know. Um. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.